So we had the privilege a couple of weeks ago to the Baraboo Light Parade. Anybody ever been? Yeah. And they're trying to light everything up. People are lit up. Floats are lived up. I mean, it's, there's a realty company that had some guy with the hot air balloon basket in the middle. No balloon, but man, <laughs> fire's going everywhere. I'm like, this is amazing, right? <clears throat> People everywhere all lined up. Different bands playing. All kinds of amazing stuff's going on. But the one thing that my son loved the most was that he took off his sock hat and he went down, was it Caleb and Timmy? Were you guys on the, on the, on the street corner? They went down and they sat on the street corner. And as people went by, they were throwing candy. And these kids were going after it. I mean, they throw candy, it's probably about five feet off the curb. Man, all fours grabbing candy, put it in their hats, full of stuff. What candy can I get? What candy can I get? I'm sitting there watching this over and over. It didn't matter what they were throwing. Kids were grabbing everything up, and I sat there and thought, I have an idea. So I reached into my pocket, and I pulled out a handful of cough drops. <laughs> and I told my wife, I said, watch this. So I'm behind them. They're up front. You know, everything's coming from front. Behind them. And I chuck it over there, and about eight pieces hit the ground. And they all go, like somebody electrocuted them, right? It just hit. And they got down on it and filling up stuff with it. So last week, my son was going through this bag of candy he had gotten from the parade. And he looked at me and he goes, Daddy, this isn't candy. I said, no, it's not. Thank you. Because it looks like candy. I mean, it's got the wrapper. It's all twisted up. It's got the colorful label on it. You open it up and it gleams like candy. You put it in your mouth, you find out it's not candy. And I think this is what a lot of people have done to Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Let's read it real quick. Verse 9. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. You may not realize this, but this is not candy. Or let me say it this way. This is not a gospel passage to share with someone so that they will come to faith in Christ. Not at all. It's not applicable. You say, well, wait a second. I see so many things there that say that it is. But I've heard this before, but I'm used to it. But my friend who shares the gospel all the time, this is what they use. How dare I say that it's wrong? When I first became a believer in Christ and got serious in my relationship with the Lord, I was heavy into prophecy. Is my mic not working? Am I confined to the back? Is it on? Is this on? There it is. Thank you, God. Okay. I loved prophecy. Loved it. Got really invested in it. Started learning all kinds of amazing things. But I started noticing as I talked to other people about the gospel and about the joy of what it was to be saved, I found out that not everybody believed the same thing that they labeled gospel. And I started to recognize this is a much deeper problem than what I ever thought it was. Because according to this verse, I don't just have to believe, I also have to confess. Is that the gospel? Sitting right there, couched in the middle of belief. 
Wouldn't you have to confess? Is confession a work? Is the gospel about our works? It is not. So we have to come to some sort of resolution about this passage because it's actually used in a lot of places. Let me give you some examples. Uh, I've spent some time in Southern Baptist circles. And so this first example I want to give to you, this is actually done by Rose Publishing. Rose Publishing publishes a lot of really great things about the temple and, and all kinds of things like that. PJ, can we go to our first example, please? The ABCs of salvation. Has anybody ever heard this? Admit that you're a sinner. Believe in Jesus. And then you need to confess that Jesus is Lord. And just in case we missed it because of the fine print, I put a nice little red arrow in there to show us. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Why not use that? Do you have to confess in order to go to heaven when you die? So why use this? Everybody see it's a problem? How many people are familiar with the Romans Road? The Romans Road, we've heard that. Some of them might have come to faith with that. The Romans Road uses that as their decision-making focus of how you know you're a Christian. Because you believe in your heart, but more importantly, you've confessed with your mouth. Because there's works to back it up. That's really where this comes from. That we've got some evidence that what happened is real. Now let's be honest. Can I go to Jack's Tap and throw a $5 bill down and ask the guy who's been drinking for six hours to say Jesus is Lord? Can I do that? You think you would? If I buy him another round, he's going to do anything, right? So notice, it's not just about confessing that. There's something different that's going on here. This was another interesting one, and I will go ahead and tell you, I've had a, a very gracious and awesome conversation with Chief Manthe when he was here, but, but, but the Gideons use this as their verse for assurance on their website. Again, I've got the red arrow there for you to see. Can we go to the next one, please? Right there. If you want assurance that you're saved, here's how you know. You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and that's how you know that you believe in Christ. Is that true? I don't think that it is. And I think this has become a problem that it's too commonly used. In fact, try, try getting on social media and just type this in to see how many people have posted about this verse. And they'll tell you, if you don't confess it, it's not real. In fact, there's one group that's known as Lordship Salvation is what they believe. And they will say, you're not just confessing Him, you're confessing Him as Lord. And if He is not Lord, whoa, pine cone, calm down. If he is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. Has anybody ever heard this? Stop for a second. Is Jesus Lord? Yes. Do you have anything to do with making him Lord? No, that's who he is. But what they're saying is if he's not Lord of your life, you're not truly saved. You're not truly justified before God. So what they've done is, is they've taken justification, the free gift of salvation, and they've taken sanctification, which is a progressive growing in your faith, and they've melded the two together and they said there's one and the same. Now they'll tell you that's not what they're saying. But if you don't have some form of submission in your life, they'll say, see, by your works you're not saved. Let this be a very good definite understanding in our minds. If the gospel calls the, the, the person to do anything but believe in the work that's already done, it is a false gospel because we are accepted by the work of Christ, not any work that we would done or that we have done. And if there's anything that says you need to do this to show that you're really saved, that's become a necessary part of that equation 
of salvation. In other words, it can't be finalized in a certain thing unless I've responded as they're saying I must respond. What that tells me is that Jesus' work on the cross was not enough. That until I do my part, salvation is not complete. I have a big problem with that. Because I can't do anything to merit salvation ever. Now I know, it's, I know the intentions are good. Don't get me wrong. We're looking for evidence that the Holy Spirit has done some things. Does the Holy Spirit do things in believers' lives when they come to faith in Christ? Absolutely. Are they always visible? No, in fact, the Spirit's business is to change us from the inside out. That's why we take in the Word. So we get changed here, and it starts to come out here. So understand, it's not necessarily that I have an axe to grind, but I think that as a church, we need to be very aware that this verse is being misused in some way. Number one, we've got to look at the forest. What is the book of Romans about? Now, I told Zach, I don't have any understanding of how to use my computer to make this. Can you do this? And he did, and it's amazing. Here's an overview of Romans for you. You might not be able to see some of the fine print here, but let me run through it real quick with you. In the beginning, we have an intro. Then they give us the purpose. We're going to read the purpose statement here in a minute. You deal in logical succession of the depravity of man. We can never do anything to save ourselves. Justification. that We've been given salvation freely by His grace, but what's interesting about this is we don't find that the word salvation is ever used there. It's always receiving the righteousness of God by faith alone. Then you get into a sanctification section, how you grow in your faith. And then the one that seems to get everybody all twisted up is Romans 9, 10, and 11. And the biggest thing that we fail to to understand about that section is it's about Israel and how they relate to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not about the church. It's not about Gentiles. It's not really so much about you and me. Israel is the focus. And it's broken down very simply. Chapter 9 is about Israel's past. Chapter 10 is about their present. And chapter 11 is about what God is going to do with them in the future. It's very simple. But there's been a lot of ideas that have come along lately that have maybe skewed some of that thinking. And I think it's time to maybe think about how we can go about returning to what I believe Paul meant when he initially wrote this book. Now, if you wouldn't mind, take your hand out or something like that, put in a 10 and turn back to 1. And let's see it real quick just so we understand where we are. Chapter 10, verse 1. I'm sorry, verse 6. Forgive me. Help me, Jesus. Uh, Romans 1, verse 16. We know this one because... We stick it all over everything. Everybody uses it. We share it with people. It's an incredible encouragement. But if we think about how Paul wrote this book, I think that sometimes it's misinterpreted. Watch this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. So it's got something to do with God's power being involved in it, okay? Watch this. For what? Man, that sounded weak. Who doesn't have a copy of the Scriptures? For what? For salvation. For salvation. Mark it. That's what the gospel is going to do. The gospel of God is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
That seems pretty simple, Jeremy. What's the problem? It's the power of God. It comes through the Gospel, but it's about salvation. Yeah, what's the big deal? Because salvation is never used in Romans to speak of somebody coming into a right relationship with God and receiving the righteousness that Christ has secured on the cross. It's never used that way. So if it's the power of God for salvation to those who believe, what Paul's talking about here is those who are already believing, whether they're Jew or Gentile. This is a book for Christians. That's the first point. Now, how do we know that salvation does not mean go to heaven when you die in this? Look at verse 17. For in it, that's the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, whether it's justification or whether it's sanctification, both of those are by faith. And look what it says here. How does it deal with it? As it's written, but the righteous, those who are righteous, but the righteous man shall be saved by faith. What's it say? Live. It has to do with how you live. That's what salvation pertains to. Now, I don't know if you're going to be able to see this. I didn't even think about how big it was going to be on the screen. PJ, if we go to that last slide. I've given you two indicators here, and here's what this shows you. Number one, in the book of Romans, how often is the word salvation used? In the second column over here, it's how often is the word saved used? And here's what you find. You find over here that 116 is the first instance, and salvation doesn't occur again in the entire book until chapter 10, verse 1. Paul does not bring up the word salvation for 10 chapters. You move over here to the word saved, and while he talked about salvation in 116, he doesn't even bring up the word saved until chapter 5, verse 9. Guess what? He dealt with justification two chapters ago. Why is he bringing it up later? Here's the reason why. Because he's showing us from the structure of the book that salvation and save do not mean go to heaven when you die. That's not what he's talking about here. Now I know that right there is enough to jar some of you because you've always, we've always talked about this person got saved. And yes, I'm not saying that's not language we shouldn't use. My question is, is how does Paul use it? And we should probably change our thinking to Paul's use. Now how does this apply to chapter 10? Well, turn with me first, go back. And look at the end of 9. And let's get a running start into chapter 10 so that we understand what the problem is. At the beginning of 9, you don't have to turn there, but Paul makes an interesting point. He says that his heart is grieved, that he's absolutely overwhelmed because the Jews are not coming to faith in Christ. And it makes no sense to him. Because they've been given all this previous revelation. In fact, we call that the Old Testament. They've, given, they've been given 39 books that speaks of God's workings and interactions with those people as His chosen people and about a constant promise of a Savior who was going to come. And now that the Savior has come, now that He's died for sins, now that He's raised from the grave, now that He's ascended from heaven, all of these Gentiles are flooding into the church and Paul saying, hey, how come the Jews aren't there? And he brings up a really interesting point. He says, if the problem is anything, God's word didn't fail. The problem is never going to be what God sets out to accomplish by his word. So what is the problem with why Israel's not coming to faith in Christ? Look with me at verse 30. Chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? 
that Gentiles, now if you're not a Jew, that's you, okay? That's a good way to remember it. If you're not a Jew, that's you. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by what? By faith. In other words, they were able to go to heaven when they die. They now have forgiveness of sin and eternal life, even though they didn't have all these previous 39 books leading them in that direction. Paul's saying it's absolutely profound that they didn't have this incredible amount of information. And yet when they heard the gospel, they believed. And now they are righteous before God because of what Jesus has done. But what about Israel? Look at the next verse, verse 31. But Israel, pursuing a what? A law. Pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law. Now pause for a second and let's make sure we clarify some very basic things. Can someone be declared righteous by the law if they keep it perfectly? Yes. Can anybody keep it perfectly? No. There's a problem, right? The problem isn't the law. The problem's me. I'm the problem. Now think about this for just a second. We can't even begin to understand, and I know you've heard me say this before, we can't begin to understand when we talk about Jesus being a worthy Savior unless we're able to take all of his actions and compare them against the law. Because the law tells us what the standard of perfection looks like. It's Jesus Christ's standard of perfection. Notice he never did anything outside the law of God. He kept it perfectly. This is what makes him the perfect, unblemished, spotless lamb to die for you and for me. But Israel, instead, has decided to law keep. And that's how they're going to be accepted by God. They decided they were going to work for it. They didn't pay attention to what God supplied for them. We're going to get there on our own. Thank you, God. Have a seat. Very dangerous thinking. So it says here, verse 32, why didn't they arrive at that law? He says, why? Because they did not pursue it how? By faith. Because it was only about works. It's about earning it. It's about being good enough. It's about trying hard enough. It's about having the laundry list, grocery list, checklist, that if somehow if I can get it all marked off, I'll be acceptable to God. That don't even work when you go to Walmart. Does You walk out and you're like, I can't believe I just forgot that, right? It was the most important reason why you went in there. You came out with all other kinds of things you didn't need, but that one thing you needed, gone. We can't even keep it. You can even place an online order and recognize after you hit send, I missed that one thing. That never happens to you? Yes, it does. So anytime that we have a checklist, we can never live up to it. Now stop for a second. Have you ever noticed the people who are trying to earn salvation and get right with God, those types of language that they use? You ever notice they're not very happy people? Very sad people, very bitter people. Because they can never be good enough to earn it. Guys, we don't have to earn it. Jesus earned it for us. That's why we call it grace. It's grace because it's completely undeserved and he gives it fully and freely. That's the beauty of the gospel so notice they didn't pursue it by faith but as though it were by works they stumbled over the stumbling stone the very thing that would redeem them they used it as a block that caused them to trip instead just as it's written behold i lay in zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense it was jesus their messiah and he who believes in him will not be disappointed or more literally put to shame if you believe now, do we understand the problem here? Gentiles didn't have any previous revelation, and yet now they're righteous because they're righteous by faith in Jesus. 
But what's going on with Israel? If all these great promises are there, and Israel had all these great promises, what happened? They threw aside Jesus' death for them, and they're trying to earn their own merit before God. It's a bad situation. With that in mind, Paul moves forward. Chapter 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Right there it is, Jeremy, see? He wants nothing more for them to go to heaven when they die. That would work if that's the way that Paul uses this throughout the book. So what we have to do is we have to ask ourselves, in the context of this chapter, is there anything that's sticking out to us that shows us that that's not what he means by salvation? The structure of the book overall is one argument to use, but is there something else? Let's keep reading and see what we find. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God. Man, they're white hot. They're on fire. You ever met people who are white hot and on fire, but man, they are dumber than a doornail. Anybody? Anybody? Just Jay? Is that all? Anybody else? He's giving me a hard time earlier, so I'm getting him back. You find people that are real excited about the wrong things. Real worked up about stuff that doesn't matter. They're willing to, to, to bust down whatever they have to to get nothing done. He's saying this is what the Jews are like. They're white hot. They're fervent. But what, here's what's interesting. Notice what it says. But not according to knowledge. That Greek word is epigenosis. It's the idea of having a full understanding of a situation. They've only got a partial knowledge of what God is doing for them and all the promises that they have in God. And because they haven't come to a full understanding of it, they're going to try to earn their acceptance with Him. That's a problem. That's a problem. Now, what is the state of Israel when Romans is written? Do we know that? Let's get in a time machine and rewind for a second. They're under Roman control. But the spiritual state of the Jews, the spiritual state of the Jews is this. Jesus came along. He began ministering only to the lost sheep of Israel. Do you remember that? Only go to the lost sheep of Israel. He gave the 12 disciples the ability to heal sickness, raise the dead, all kinds of amazing things. Only go to the lost sheep of Israel. Why? Because they had all this previous understanding and they needed to accept their Messiah. And if they did, he would bring in this kingdom that they had always longed for. But he got in a situation with the leaders, the Pharisees. And because he was doing all these amazing works and drawing so much attention to himself, they started to get angry and actually were plotting a way to try to kill him. And so there got to be a situation where he healed somebody on the Sabbath. Man, they didn't like that because you had to be a law keeper. You had to check off your checklist. And Jesus doesn't fit my mold or my criteria, so we got to do something about him. He's messing up our whole system. And so they call him in front of him as an audience, and he's supposed to give an account. And they tell him, they say, the works you do are actually the works of the devil. Now that's pretty severe whenever you're doing good stuff. I've never known Satan to do good stuff. You ever been like, man, Satan's been doing some good stuff in my life. That never happens. No. Satan's always doing bad stuff. But the leaders declared him evil. And when that happened, Jesus' ministry completely changed. He said, if the works I'm doing in front of you are the works of the Holy Spirit, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. You missed it. You missed it. Now that's a problem. Because then from that point forward, now Jesus begins to speak about His betrayal, His death, His burial, His resurrection. 
And he had never spoke like that before. He began stepping into telling parables and stories to people in teaching. And he had never spoken like that before. And even his disciples were like, Jesus, you got real weird real fast. What happened here? And he said, the reason is, is because they weren't willing to see what I was plainly putting in front of them. So now I'm veiling it as a means of judgment to them. In fact, I don't know that I have it up on the screen, but if you would turn over just to chapter 11, look at verse 25. This is a Pete Freitag verse right here. 1125, it's a great prophecy verse. You went over today? Romans, see? Man, we're in sync, brother. I love it. We must have the same Holy Spirit. That's good. Verse 25, look what he says. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. A mystery is not scooby-doo, okay? A mystery is something that was previously not known that God is now revealing to them and they're giving them further revelation about a situation. So here's something that they may not have known previously, but here's what God's doing and we get a glimpse into it. He says, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. In other words, so you don't think so highly of yourself as the church. This is meant to keep you humble. What is that? Here it is. That a partial hardening has happened to Israel until, that's timing language if you want to draw little clock hands next to it, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. In other words, because their promised Messiah was betrayed and killed by the people that he came to save, I am now putting a partial hardening on them so that they cannot believe and respond to the gospel. Now, there is always a remnant of Jewish people who can respond to the gospel, and Paul is evidence of that. And it goes on until this day. We still have Messianic Jews to this day. But so that we know what's going on spiritually speaking, because of their betrayal, I picture like a stove, that's always my analogy I come to, Israel has been taken off the front burner and put on the back burner to simmer for a time. The church, a brand new pot, has been put on top, and now we got stew going, okay? And and us being taken off the burner is going to be the rapture when that takes place. But right now, God's plan is predominantly working with Gentiles, and it's working for a big way. So that we are enjoying an eternal relationship with the Almighty Creator, of whom Israel is His chosen people, of whom many promises were made, and we're saved by their Messiah. That's supposed to drive them to jealousy. God wants to use his love for people to drive the people that he's chosen to jealousy. Why? So they would turn to him and be saved. That's the plan of God right now. So when we go back to chapter 10, and we talk about that they're zealous, yes. They're zealous for law keeping. Because even to this day, they don't believe that Jesus was their Messiah. Even to this day, they're still looking out for the Messiah. In fact, here's an interesting thing if you want to read Matthew 24 sometime. When the Messiah shows up, it's actually going to be the Antichrist in their eyes. And I believe that a lot of Jewish people are going to be deceived because this Antichrist steps into the Holy of Holies in the middle of the temple and declares himself to be God. They're going to say, he went where the Spirit of God is. He's not struck dead. He must be the promised one we've always been looking for. He's finally here. And next thing you know, the people of God are going to be massively deceived. It's a tragic way. They're zealous, but not according to a full knowledge. Look at verse 3. For not knowing about God's righteousness, that's the coming of Christ, and seeking to establish their own, that's law-keeping, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. In other words, they didn't believe in Jesus, and therefore they don't have God's righteousness. Verse 4, here it is. For Christ, 
is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who, what? Believes. Does the Christian have to keep the law? No. Never. Not in one bit. No Ten Commandments. Nothing. We are not under the law. We are not Israel. Christ is our righteousness. Not law-keeping. Christ is our righteousness. The Jewish people missed it. Verse 5. For Moses writes that a man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. In other words, if you're going to try to work for it, you better keep it all. You better be perfect. You better not get out of line. You better not make God mad. You better not accidentally stub your toe and say something. It's hell for you. Serious stakes, right? Because what does the law demand? Perfection. What is the law? The law is the written perfection of God. Where's the problem? Me. I'm the problem. So watch how this moves forward. Verse 6. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as followed. Now watch this. Because this gets confusing. Give me a second to explain it. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Now you say, what in the world does that mean? This is quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 30. And all throughout Deuteronomy, Moses is constantly writing, you shall keep these laws and these statutes and God will bless you. It'll be tremendous, it'll be amazing. Moses knows he's getting ready to die. And he says, you know what? When I'm done with this, don't hem-haw. No hem-haw theology in Israel. Well, I don't know what he said. We all become Eeyore for some reason. And he's saying, don't do that. Don't, Don't try to act like, well, somebody needs to go up in heaven and bring that law down. No, Moses went up to the mountain and he brought the law down to them. Well, there needs to be something massively spiritual. Maybe we need to descend into hell itself and and bring these truths out of here. Well, no, that's not the case either. Now, notice how he's trying to apply that to Christ. Has Christ come down from heaven? Yeah, he came down from heaven and he died and he's reascended, yes? Yes. Has Christ raised from the dead? Yes, absolutely he has. What more evidence do we need? Some people say, well, I just can't believe the gospel. Why? God's given you everything that you need to. Notice what he says here in verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. In other words, it's not that difficult. God's made it clearly known, especially if we find ourselves with open door opportunities to share about the death and resurrection with Jesus and we call them to believe. Good grief. The gospel's everywhere. We have more Bibles in America than anywhere else in the world. So notice, the message of salvation has already been supplied for you. It's been given by divine signs, if not the greatest divine sign, of the coming of the promised Messiah and his resurrection from the dead. It's there. The message is there. It's not hard, is what he's saying. Now, why is this important? Look what he says, verse 9. If you confess, that word confess is the exact same word in 1 John 1, 9 as confess. Amalegeo, to say the same thing about it. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For, here's an explanation, with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. Isn't it interesting that if salvation doesn't mean go to heaven when you die? Why does Paul bring that up first? Why does he bring up the idea of confession first? Does everybody notice that in verses 9 and 10 you have an A? B, B, A pattern. Does everybody see that? Confess, believe, believe, confess. Does everybody see this pattern here in Scripture? Paul does it intentionally. Why does he do it? 
Because the greatest thing they need is salvation. What kind of salvation? Well, if they're in a situation of partial hardening and they can't see the gospel and believe it because they're so concerned with rituals and law keeping, what Paul's greatest concern for his people is that they would have national deliverance. See, salvation doesn't just mean go to heaven when you die. It means your justification. That's instantaneous when you're accepted by God because of Christ's righteousness. It means your sanctification, you growing by faith as you learn more about the Word, but it also means your glorification when you actually go to heaven, when you die and you have no more sin around you. It also means to be healed from something. It also means to be physically delivered from harm. It also means to be rescued from a bad situation. It's got many different meanings. But if we make the mistake of every time I see the word salvation, it means go to heaven when you die, this becomes a problem. Have you confessed Jesus as your Lord? Well, if you have, you might truly be saved, but didn't you have to do that in order to go to heaven when you die? It makes no sense. But this helps make us see, what does Paul mean in chapter one or chapter 10, verse 1? My prayer for them is that they would be saved, that they would have this salvation. The idea is that they would be saved from the wrath of God that is now against them. Why? Because they killed their Christ. And that's where they're at. That's the problem. And they need to be nationally rescued from that. Now here's a question. Can Israel be nationally rescued back into the good graces of God and still be unbelieving? Is that possible? They cannot. There's the key. So watch, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. What did that mean for the first century Jew? What's the word Lord mean? Do we know? Not just king. What's that? Master, close. That's more Old Testament hit that we see. Savior? How about Messiah? Does that matter? Does the idea of the Messiah matter to the Old Testament? In fact, Jews are looking for it to this day. You ever get a chance, get on YouTube. And I think you type in olive tree branch something sharing the gospel. It's, it's about Isaiah 53, how, how the rabbis will no longer use Isaiah 53 uh, in synagogues anymore, especially over in Jerusalem, because it speaks so explicitly about Jesus Christ, they don't want him to know about it anymore, because the rabbis don't believe that Jesus is their Messiah, and Isaiah 53 testifies that he is, because it all lines up perfectly with his life. And so this guy goes out on the street, and he's speaking to them in Hebrew, and it's got really good subtitles, so you can follow it. And he ends up sharing with them Isaiah 53. They say, who's this sound like? And they all come to this conclusion. It sounds like Jesus. It's an incredible, powerful thing. They need the light of the gospel bad. But not just that. They need to be delivered as God's chosen people. Anybody kept track with what's going on over there? Forever. In fact, they were completely dispersed from the land until 1948. And ever since they've come into the land, they've had immediate war all the time. Missiles shot into places for schools where people live. All their teachers carry around semi-automatic weapons. I think that's pretty cool. I mean, seriously. That's the type of landscape they live in. So it's a serious, serious affair. They need deliverance. They need deliverance from their enemies. In fact, here's an interesting thing. Pull out a map sometime, and you'll see this little bacon strip along the Mediterranean Sea called Israel. Nobody? Kosher? Okay, whatever. Right down through there. And here's what's amazing. Muslims, 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 Muslims. How come these Muslims can't get together and just wipe them out? I mean, they hate them. They can't stand them. They refuse to acknowledge them at the meetings of the United Nations. Why can't they just 
Because God's hand is over them because He's made a promise to redeem them. He's made a promise to bring them to national deliverance. That's the reason why. So notice what it says after this. And believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. You will be saved. For, here's the explanation. With the heart, a person believes resulting in righteousness. Because that's what they need first. Where do we find righteousness predominantly being talked about? Well, we saw it at the end of 9. That was the problem, right? I'm trying to get righteousness by law keeping. You can't do it. It's not there. You're too broken. You need a perfect Savior. But you also find it back in chapters 3 and 4. Look to the next part. And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in deliverance. Verse 11. For the Scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Saw that at the end of 9, so he brings it up again. Just so we're clear, you're saved by faith and faith alone. But look where he moves then. Verse 12. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. What does the word call mean? The word call here is actually used synonymous with confess. The idea is that somebody gets in a hard time in their life, and you may be a believer in Jesus Christ, but let's be honest. God really starts moving and working in weird ways that make us all very uncomfortable when we start calling upon him to get involved. In fact, we often call that prayer. When we're pouring out our hearts to him saying, Lord, there is no solution I could possibly see. I need you to be involved. I'm looking for you to be the difference in this situation. It's beckoning his involvement. And when you see this all throughout Scripture, that's what you see. His involvement in these types of things. Getting involved. What does that mean in the national level for Israel? It means coming in and completely flipping the Middle East so that they are the dominant country. Notice it says here, verse 13, for whoever will call, there it is again, on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now pause for a second. And and PJ, if you wouldn't mind, go to Matthew 23. You can just write this down if you want. But I want to show you some very interesting words that Jesus said before he taught on the end times. He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were not willing. You wouldn't have it. Instead of giving a free pardon to salvation, you much rather work for it. Sounds like a raw deal to me. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. And then look what he says at the very end. Because here is where the call, the confession takes place. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what it's going to look like in the end times. The second coming of Christ after seven years of tribulation, it's going to all be capped off with the Jewish people crying out that their Messiah, because they bought into a false Messiah, a lot of them got killed, some of them stayed alive, some of them got totally deceived. But they're going to cry out for their Messiah. Come, God, please, send Mashiach and deliver us. And that's great because it says the sky rolls up like a scroll. He comes back. People start freaking out and dying. It's amazing. I love it. It's the greatest exactment of justice over incredible eternal evil. It's when he returns to make all things right. It's when he settles the score. Let me give you a last one. Romans 10. Look at verse 14. He gives you a sequence backwards. This is how we know that call is something beyond just having faith in Jesus. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? 
There it is. Do you have to believe before you can call? Yes, you do. So how can they believe on him? Or how can they call on him unless they believe? And how will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah said, Lord, who's believed our report? And the answer was no one. The problem is, is they don't believe it when they're told it. What does that tell me and you? It tells me and you that we need to be praying for the salvation of Israel. And number two, we need to be going to the house of Israel. And we need to be letting them know, your Messiah loves you, your Messiah has already come, and he's already died for your sins. Believe in him and be saved. And then as a nation, call out and experience his rescue from heaven. This is actually motivation for missions. Romans 10, 9 and 10, it's not candy. It's something completely different. And let's not confuse it in our gospel presentations and therefore make people think, well, maybe I didn't confess enough. Well, maybe I didn't confess everything. Well, maybe I needed to confess all my sins in order to be saved. Well, maybe I need to confess exactly Jesus is Lord. Well, maybe I need to go back to the original Greek language and confess that because that seems to be the language that God understands. What is wrong with everybody? But this is exactly what Satan wants to do. How can I dilute the simple message of salvation about a perfect Savior dying a perfect undeserved death for an undeserving and sinful people. Everybody with me? Awesome, let's pray. Thank you, God, that your word is clear. Hopefully we see it, we understand it. That we want to understand how the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write it and not bring anything convoluted to the text. Recognize that we need to have a heart for the Jewish people. Maybe we don't. Maybe that's our point of prayer today. Maybe it's a fact that we need to understand that we're called to go share the gospel with the Jews and we need to stand up out of here and begin preparing to leave and to go and to let them know that Christ is their Messiah. Father, you've promised us when this is going to happen at the second coming. The Lord, every moment counts. Maybe we've stepped into a a point in our lives where we're trying to keep the law. We're just trying to do right things so that you will accept us or love us. Rescue us from that false thinking. Please save us from that false thinking. You already love us completely. You accept us in Christ your Son or not at all. He is the only way of salvation. And that way is by faith and faith alone. Father, thank you that your word is clear. Help us to be students of it that your spirit would be our teacher. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.